0: Cophony tells you that the Power of Three podcast is back. I'm Kenny Smith and I'm here with episode 109 of the podcast that loves to celebrate Doctor Who in all its forms, whether on TV, audio, books, animations or anything else. We like to dissect, discuss, discourse and disagree as we travel through the universes of Doctor Who and this week we're meeting one of the writers of the latest sixth Doctor box set from Big Finish water worlds in the words of our colleague and friend david Steele, i'm throwing open my dimensionally transcendental contacts book to bring us another guest in water worlds colin baker's doctor returns as he's thrown straight in at the deep end traveling the galaxy with melanie bush and their brand new companion marine biologist hebe harrison there are wonders to see dangerous to face and plenty of peril beneath the waves Lots of out there. The second story in the set is a two-parter: "The Tides of the Moon" by Joshua Pruitt. According to the Big Finish website, for Hebe's first trip in the TARDIS, the Doctor and Mel take her to the nearest available water world, the Moon, two billion years in the past. Its advanced humanoid inhabitants, the Gillians, are terrorised each night by their monstrous enemies, the Shiga. Even more worrying is that in a matter of hours, this ocean world will be laid waste by the gravitational interference of a blue-green planet next door. I chatted with Joshua by email months ago for Vortex, that's the free magazine from Big Finish which you can get at www.bigfinish.com forward slash Vortex and I happen to mention that I am a podcast producer and one of those is the power of three. So one to try and find content for this podcast. I asked if he would like to come on as a guest after the story's release, and he said yes. So making his Doctor Who podcast debut as a guest,
1: it's Josh Pruitt. Yeah, hi, uh, my name is Joshua Pruitt and I'm the writer of Tides of the Moon.
0: Welcome to the Power of Three podcast. It's always a delight to chat with people with whom I've had email and Twitter conversations and then to finally actually have a sort of face-to-face chat. It's always good fun.
1: Oh, pleasure to be here. And Kenny, you were the first person to interview me about uh, my work on uh, Tides of the Moon, so it's it's a pleasure doing this now, kind of for real. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Now that it's out, we can actually
0: talk about it, of course. We will say, spoiler warning for those who haven't heard yet. yet Definite spoiler warning today. Yeah. Yeah. And if you haven't heard it, go out and buy it, then come
1: back and... And listen to us but go and listen to it and listen Absolutely, to the whole box yeah. set
0: first not just your one they're all great yeah
1: please buy yeah buy water worlds it's wonderful it's wonderful i'm i'm uh sandwiched between uh you know over 50 plus years of incredible doctor who experience with jack rayner and jonathan morris so yeah i'm i'm the bit of rubbish in the middle oh but... <laughs> There's a good Scottish word for you, "shush."
0: <laughs> I could have the other the other great Scottish phrase is "hod your feest," which means oh, nice. be quiet. So, okay, well, "hod yer So, yeah. So, you better tell the listeners where you are speaking to us from today.
1: Yeah, great. Uh, I'm in uh, San Diego County in uh, Southern California, in the in the colonies, um, and this is about where I grew up. Uh, and, and being a Doctor Who fan in California when and trying to seek out others. I didn't really know how to do that. Yeah. Um, it, it, boy, it did get easier after 2005, though. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but before that, uh, it, it, is, it does seem to be a fairly universal thing that um, everybody out here was catching Tom and Peter and Colin uh, on KPBS. <laughs> So there was like a local kind of, not lo- well, international or uh, sorry, national cable network. But they were, you know, uh, ahead of the game and they were importing uh, Doctor Who here in the States. Um, but, you know, I think for most kids my age, KPBS was also the home of like Sesame Street and things like that. So like seeing this kind of strange, you uh, you know uh people with accents science fiction program you know it it kind of broke our little brains you know the first time that we that we all saw it and then you know we were kind of hooked at that yeah do you remember how old you were when you first started watching i think i was about eight eight years old or so i was visiting my dad in new york and uh very much had that uh you know hiding behind the couch moment i uh When I've shared this in the past, that's like, I I think my memory banks kind of conflate Ark in Space and uh, I wanna say it's Seeds of Doom. Mm -hmm. So Ark in Space has the lovely bubble wrap body horror transformation. (laughs) And then I think Seeds of Doom has the gentleman in in the bathtub that's very much, you know, John Campbell's who goes there or Carpenter's the thing kind of body horror going on. And I just remember being so scared (laughs) I remember being so scared and hiding behind the couch and then not really understanding that that's another very universal thing for a Doctor Who fan, especially a young Doctor Who fan. Um, But yeah, at the time I had no idea, I was just doing what felt right. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah.
0: So so I suppose chat a wee bit about your writing career because Mm. I was, as you may recall from when we started chatting on Twitter, I did ask, are you the Joshua Pruitt because <laughs> I am very, very aware of Phineas and Ferb, and mm. even though my Katie is 16, I still whack on Phineas and Ferb on Disney Plus oh, because wonderful. it's just such a great show.
1: Oh, such an uh, endless pleasure to be a part of that and to be some small piece of that show. Um, I, I started as a storyboard artist. I got in as a feature storyboard artist at DreamWorks, and I was there, I started there in production. I was an intern and then worked on uh, Shrek the Third as a production associate and then um, like a PA and then um, worked on Over the Hedge as a coordinator in the story department, but I, I did really wanna draw. And so uh, kind of the short version is I asked if I could take the story test, which is how sometimes they you know, uh, got applicants in and I was told that I could not take it because I was already in the studio. And so I waited for those people to get fired and they <laughs> did. And uh, I asked again, and the current leadership was like, of course, you can take the test, Josh, you know how the sausage is made. If, if you do a good job, that's a win for everybody because you understand what it takes to get these movies made. And so I ended up being the first internal production candidate to actually get that job, wow. which and my life changed. So that was 2006. And so I was there for about five years. I worked on monsters versus aliens. I worked a a lot on kind of the dragons, like spin off series, Mm -hmm. but I was doing a lot of writing and the studio was kind of moving in a direction where, you know, traditionally story artists in feature animation, they write a lot. So they contribute a lot to the finished product, not just do the drawings that help convey the story. Um, And the studio kind of overall was moving away from writer board artists and they just wanted uh, draft people, really. Um, and so they. my contract ended, and I needed to find new work, and uh, ended up sitting down with Dan and Swampy over at Phineas and Ferb, and the team over at Lego Movie, and I got the same, I got a job offer from both places in the same week. Wow. And uh, I ended up picking Phineas and Ferb because I'd get writing credit for the work that I was doing. Yeah. Um, at DreamWorks, I'd been really frustrated because I'd contributed to things, and I have jokes in How to Train Your Dragon, but it was only from a punch-up uh, afternoon, so I didn't get screen credit for that work. And I had been doing similar types of things where my writing was really kind of taking me places and I was establishing a reputation. But my thought was, well, I can't, I can't have a career if that's invisible, if people don't know that I've contributed those things. So I was like, I need to fix that. And so uh, both jobs had the exact same pay. And so uh, I picked Phineas because I'd get writing credit for the first time for the work that I was doing, uh, and that re- that really shifted the trajectory of my career. Um, so I joined Phineas uh, fourth season, um, and I, you know, I, the way Phineas is built, for those who don't know, it's a board-driven series. So most prime-time animation that everyone's familiar with, like. Simpsons or Family Guy; those are all script driven series where the storyboard artists just take a full script and they will draw out like comic strip style panels and they will essentially draw the entire episode. And that'll get put into an animatic with sound effects and dialogue. Um, on SpongeBob, the initial run of SpongeBob and shows like Phineas, there is a team of writers who develop a story and an outline. That outline then goes to a storyboard team, two person team and they will write and draw the episode. So we are responsible for doing you know, that animatic pass, the drawing pass, but also writing all of the dialogue. And so it was a tremendous opportunity. Um, it felt a little bit like working without a net, um, but had a great time, uh, befriended the story editor, Scott Peterson, he and I are still close and we've written books together since. Um, and while I was there, pitched an original idea for a zombie episode, Night of the Living Pharmacists which was a riff on Night of Living Dead. And so we actually got the chance to, we got George Romero to do a voice on that episode. Uh, Nick Frost and Simon Pegg also did cameo appearances in that episode. Um, But that was the kind of thing where, you know, I wanted to write more, I wanted to contribute at a higher level. You know, I I wanted to be, you know, in the room where it happens, so to speak, and um, moving kind of my path into being a writer. So since then, uh, I've kind of gone back and forth between writing and storyboarding. Um, I worked on The Last Kids on Earth series uh, for Netflix. Uh, I did storyboards and some writing for the relaunch of Mystery Science Theater 3000 on Netflix, which was an absolute dream come true, absolute dream come true. Um, and then I've uh, been writing books uh, since then, and, uh, and I'm now back at Disney. I worked on a series called Milo Murphy's Law where we did um, a kind of a a loving homage to Doctor Who called Doctor Zone, which was a total blast. Uh, And we did lots of timey-wimey stuff on that. And then uh, now I'm back at Disney working on uh, Dan Povenmire's new series, Hamster and Gretel, which is really exciting. Um, And then, of course, had my first Doctor Who story, which which is actually how I got involved. Phineas and Ferb is actually what got me, uh, how I got involved in Doctor Who with Jack Reiner uh, in the first place, because she's a fan as well.
0: Yeah, of course, we should mention, for those who don't know, the basic setup of Phineas and Ferb is we've got uh, two families who've come together when parents have remarried. We've got the English family and the American family. And, of course, one of the great things, and this is just, I've just realized this, that in writing for Ferb, you've got to write for a Doctor Who TV star.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's kind of the... (sighs) It's like when you go back and track these things, like Doctor Who has been there the whole time. Yep. Um, but yeah, Tom Sangster, who, who is the voice, who was the original voice of Ferb. Um, you know, I think he was on uh, uh, Family of Blood, right? I think, That's right. And that Human Nature. Yeah. Yeah. And Human Nature. Um, and, you know, he would then go on to be killed in a Star Wars movie. <laughs> he's, he's in Force Awakens for for 15 seconds. But I believe he's got a line of dialogue before he gets blown up. Um, but, yeah, there, there are some fun connections there that, uh, you know, kind of laying some pipe on, on the way to me writing Doctor Who. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. It's a fantastic story about how um, you and Jack sort of got in touch and started uh, communicating and getting the commission for the script.
1: Oh, yes. Uh, so, so as a Doctor Who fan and, and you know, I had lofty ambitions. And certainly I, I, am, I am of the opinion that, you know, excellent Doctor Who comes out of, you know, British voices and British Canadian voices. Um, and, uh, you know, the, there's only a handful of Americans who've written uh, The Doctor, uh, but I wanted to be in that very small group. And, and so I, uh, I submitted, I think three or four times to uh, a couple of the a big Finnish open calls um and the short competitions um and i think one time ian atkins gave me an encouraging email on one of my submissions which was lovely um and then i think i also submitted to a bernie um open call for stories and then at one point i I decided you know i want to do some research i want to see you know who are all these wonderful authors um who are contributing to big finish to uh you know the penguin books um, you know who's doing all of that wonderful ancillary material, which has you know, which survived us during the dark times, um, but but also just have expanded the universe of Doctor Who as we know it. And um, and so I just was following different authors online, and I sought out Jack because I had known, you know, her work on audio and in print. And uh, when I went and found her Twitter handle. Um, her profile picture was Vanessa, one of the characters from Phineas and Ferba, Doofenshmirtz's daughter. And so we we kind of started like in a mutual admiration society. Um, and she's so kind about this on the behind the scenes feature on um, Tides of the Moon, which was just, I was blushing, listening to it. Um, but essentially us going, well, I really love your work. Oh, I really love your work. Um, and... There was uh, an opportunity over at Penguin where they were looking for some new Doctor Who writers and, and Jack was kind enough to put in a good word for me. and Nothing came of it at that particular time, but we just kept in touch. And her boys uh, were big fans of Phineas, but also had watched Milo Murphy's Law. Uh, and so when new things would come up on Milo, I would you know make sure to flag her so that her and the boys knew it was coming. And so we would just keep in touch over the years. And then one day, uh, like August, I want to say August of 2020, I got an email, a Twitter DM from Jack saying that she had been asked to produce a new series of The Sixth Doctor. And she wondered if I would be interested in writing a story. And, you know, truth be told, Kenny, I I cried. (laughs) Oh, that's lovely. I I was on my morning walk, and uh, I got the ping, and was just kind of looking. I was like, "Oh, what's this email? Oh, it's Jack. Oh, great!" And uh, yeah, I actually cried because you know I just never thought I'd get the chance to to write Doctor Who. and certainly after my experience on Mystery Science Theater, I'd been like, oh yeah, it's not gonna get better than that. You know, like it, when, when I think about my ambitions and, and my dreams as as a writer, a creative person, and as a 10-year-old kid, you know, Mystery Science Theater and, and Doctor Who were kind of those main satellites for me. that They were my universe and very much still are. <laughs> um, but yeah, I cried and, and then said yes and ran around the house screaming and, uh and that was kind of what kick-started all of this. That's amazing. And it's such a great set. And it's the fact that there's, we
0: get to meet Hebe and the fact there's that lovely through line that all the stories are have an aquatic feel to them. And yes. So that must have been quite exciting when you're sort of given all that and the fact you're given the first off-world trip for a new companion as well.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I was out of my mind, Kenny, uh, uh, to be quite honest. Um, so, so early, very early on, you know, uh, Jack had said, great, Josh, I want you to do something weird and scary and funny. And it's her first adventure off world. And I just, I lost my mind and I was like, yes, that's what I do. I can do that. Um, I'm happy to do that. Thrilled to do that. And, um, one of the other kind of important pieces that Jack and story editor Rob Valentine kind of threw out was, they wanted Hebe to be funny, which is just a gift. And, and it's one of these things where, you know, all of our favorite companions, I mean, all of the companions uh, in the history of Doctor Who audio and, and and on television, you know, they have moments where they can be funny. Right. But I, I'd be hard pressed to 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 point to a companion that that was just funny, you know, that that one of their defining characteristics is that they were a very funny character. Humor is all over Doctor Who, but but I thought this was kind of a singular opportunity in that capacity um, to to kind of write a write a companion who's going to walk through this and roll through this um, it, uh, for the first time, so we get fresh eyes on that TARDIS experience, um, and um, also you know tongue planted firmly in cheek, someone who's going to you know, Raz, the sixth doctor, who could use a little razzing from time to time, mm-hmm. um, and someone who's gonna bump up against Mel. So that was just an extraordinary gift to, to really grab that with both hands. And then as far as the aquatic angle, it's interesting you bring, bring that up because in the very early days, um, as Jack and Rob were kind of arranging how the box sets were gonna work together, the water bit came up accidentally. So both her and myself and Jonathan Morris, we had all kind of pitched things that were in this water space because he be as a marine biologist, I think we all thought that that, that's an appropriate thing to give her water aliens and water based challenges. Um, And so initially it was going to be a problem. and, And actually, I think Jack in her infinite wisdom realized no, great, this is a thematic connector. And so we can, you know, the whole thing can be about that. And uh, I just thought that was a fantastic idea and it it unifies the stories in, I think, a unique way, uh, especially since we're introducing a, a brand new companion in Hebe.
0: Yeah, the thing that I found really fascinating across the stories, and it's obviously something that Jack talks about in the extras, is that as a person, who does use a wheelchair? Mm-hmm. Just some of the things that you know, like you know, just you'd automatically offer to go and help somebody. you know, to yes. push them as an able-bodied person, and just yeah. some of the comments you think it's a real, it's a real eye-opener, and it's sort of things that you wouldn't necessarily think of, and I'd imagine that as you were going through the writing process, that there'd be wee things like that that Jack might have pointed out in a in a in a, in a polite way that things that you wouldn't automatically think of.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And um, certainly Jack kind of offered herself as a resource in, in that regard, but was very careful to kind of flag all the writers and say, look, you know, my experience is not universal, as Jack put it. You know, she's like, I don't speak for every wheelchair user in the world. She's like, I, you know, I can offer my experience certainly. But, but the, the goal of it ended up being, you know, first and foremost, to make he be as well-rounded and lovable and, as to feel like a real person. And, and certainly I think that's where we all were shooting. But then there were, there were lovely little things like, you know, where I think uh, in the finished cut, you know, he'd be like, touch my chair and I'll bite you. That was something I put in my very, very first draft that Jack responded really positively to. So, yeah. so I was lucky in that a number of my first instincts seemed right about where Hebe was coming from and what, what her life might be like and her point of view. And then, you know, Jack and Rob were very much, uh, very kind uh, and, and generous in how they would help sculpt certain moments just to make sure of, you know, where we were kind of positing our sensitivity and where we were making sure that, you know, Hebe's voice felt authentic uh, and that we weren't being pedantic and that we weren't being preachy but we're being as honest as we possibly could. In the midst of all that insane fun, you know, which is very much why you know, I my my very first notes, my very first instincts in my story were I wanted Hiba to be touching things. Like, you know, touching Walk, the the, you know, handsome alien and you know, my thought was somebody from Kibi's biological interest somebody who has a you know biology degree and has experience in that arena when faced with aliens for the first time i just thought oh gosh she's going to be just overwhelmed like i mean she's not she's going to be a toddler in a candy store so that that was very much what influenced that and then i think the fun the discovery in my writing was oh what a cute thing if she's you know actually flirting a little bit with the fish man um, and, and that kind of added a, a whole other dimension to what I had initially planned. But again, one, certainly one of those things that makes Hebe more relatable and, and makes her into a, a more well-rounded companion, definitely.
0: Yeah, and of course, the whole concept of water and the moon, that was something that I'd, uh, I was sort of like, oh, that's a, that's an interesting concept. And then, of course, it's absolutely real. It's
1: something that's been talked about yes. scientifically. Yes. It's so interesting the way the timing of all of this, because we were we were putting our pitches together in late summer and um, I was prepping material and ideas. And, you know, I think I ended up pitching seven or eight ideas because I was just so excited Um, and I had something similar. And then there and then there was an article that was published, I want to say, October of that year, excuse me, and um, and talking about how they found evidence. You know, they found evidence that water had been on the moon at some point. Um, and so that just seemed perfect. And you know, for me, as a Diet in the Wolf fan, I, you know, I was trying to think about, you know, what are all these wonderful elements that make a Doctor Who? And and certainly I was shooting for something that was in between a classic series and a modern series, you know, so that we, you know, get and keep that modern audience. but. Have a flavor that seems appropriate for Colin, and um, and so one of the things was yeah you want that you know exotic location that has the f- sense of the familiar about it, you know you need your scary monsters you need your uh, you know race of peoples in some sort of peril, um, and you know finding all of those elements and and you know not a formula but certainly a checklist as a fan being like oh if you know if i'm gonna sit down and listen to a new companion these are the things that i'm going to be expecting this is what i want um but but certainly that that bit of factual backup was serendipitous at the time what a joy that was to be like oh great then i'm gonna go ahead and go for that certainly i did have a moment where i was thinking about oh okay in in capaldi's series we had you know the the moon is actually a shell it's an eggshell and and so certainly the moon has factored in um, quite a bit over the history of Doctor Who, but I thought if I went back far enough, I might be safe. <laughs> and two two plus billion years seemed a safe zone for me to explore that potentially.
0: Yeah, I don't think the egg would have hatched that quickly after that. Yes, yet. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and it just must have been such a real thrill for you. Just the fact that you're writing or typing TARDIS int close brackets. Oh my god. And then getting work to put words into particularly Colin and Bonnie, is there the familiar voices that we yes. know so much and love?
1: Oh, gosh, yes, and I, uh, I definitely got choked up when I was doing that <laughs> <laughs> the first time. And I think I frame grabbed it for myself and, and yep. put it in a little file on my computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I want to say in my, first, my very first draft, I think I had written something like, you know, uh, and we hear the engines of the greatest spaceship in, in, the, in history and the greatest theme tune in tv history queue up <laughs> and, and rob rob very deftly was like you know we might want to trim this out for your word count josh you know <laughs> <laughs> and kind of along those same lines i think that in that doctor who fan checklist i, I definitely had the cloister bells queuing up uh when our characters spoilers when our characters uh, find themselves shipwrecked and and Rob was very sweet and and was like you know maybe save that for another story. Say save, save the cloister bell. You don't you don't have to use it all here. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So very much there was a uh, uh, the the fan in me and the writer in me having lots of you know very heated and and excited discussions about you know what to do and and how to approach Colin and how to uh, uh, approach Mel. Um, and very much my uh, initial instinct was, you know, I may not ever get to do this again. And so I want to put in, you know, all the things that I feel about the doctor. And I want to put in what all the things that I feel is special about Colin's doctor and all the things that I want and, and think Mel should be. Um, and and certainly for for Mel, you know, Bonnie Langford's in you know an amazing actress and and I think that the history of Doctor Who has shown that you know when we give these characters the material that they deserve you know all of these performers rise and exceed every time and so coming at Mel from a point of love and affection and and then thinking about oh gosh you know seeing Mel in a position where you know she's so experienced she's she's done this and and we know she will. She will do this later on, with uh, in her adventures with the Seventh Doctor as well. So, so the idea of her being, um, you know, the the one who's been around the universe a time or two, who can you know help this young pup on her early journeys. Um, I just thought that's what a joy to be able to write that, but then also to give to give Mel opportunities where she's a bit on the back foot so to speak and where there is some uh, emotional work that has to be done between mel and hebe for them to uh, build a relationship one of the, one of the first things i sent to rob and um, jack was this document where i was thinking okay if they've had this adrenaline filled first adventure in rotting deep and it's life and death and they're clinging to each other and and doing this and this and doing the things that that uh, uh you know a companion's introductory adventure needs to do that very much the second could be oh this is where the honeymoon has has started to wane maybe where now it's about well what are they going to do now that they're around each other all the time and you know i'm, re- I'm reminded i think i made a note of this of like the, the old original mtv's real world you know when things uh start getting real you know like like people stop being polite and start getting real and so that was kind of my uh, modus operandi for this was, oh no, they're gonna be honest. They're gonna, you know, they, they've been on summer camp now for uh, over a week. So those initial kind of courtesies and politeness, that's gonna fall away a little bit in the face of danger. Um, and so to have Mel and Hebe be bonded and separate them from the doctor a little bit. And then for Colin, just, you know, Thinking about okay, where finding that warmth and sensitivity that have come from stories that Jack's been writing, where you know the Sixth Doctor has been, uh, for all intents and purposes, kind of refined and polished in the Big Finish era, um, and where we get the warmth that we always knew that Colin had, you know, that that Sixty absolutely has post Evelyn, right? There's absolutely. there's. Uh, and and I think that that's, I mean, Colin is such a gift across the board, but absolutely finding moments where, yeah, I want to give him a little moment of self-righteousness. Gotta do that. I want him to be his pompous self, his confident self. I want to do that. Um, so then the opportunity became, oh, good, let me pair him with somebody who might be grumpier than he is. Let me Let me pair him with someone who, who is gonna put Colin on the back foot a little bit. And, uh, and certainly I am not comparing myself in any way, but I was very much thinking of Helios, our uh, lighthouse keeper and scientist in Tides of the Moon in a kind of Robert Holmes space of someone who had a, who's had a life before this, this episode has started up, you know, who has strong personality and a strong history and a strong background, someone who's smart, Someone who you could see having an adventure on their own, and that was certainly what my goal for Helios was as a, as a character, and to have somebody who could bounce off of Old Sixie in a really fun way um, to show us different sides of the Sixth Doctor in, in those set of circumstances. So those were those were things I was really excited about. I was very excited about writing those scenes and. Um, I did get to listen in on the day of record, which was an extraordinary thing. And we'll come back to that. But um, there's a moment where uh, Verge Gilchrist and Colin were doing their goodbye scene. And it was just very moving, Uh, very moving to hear, you know, such incredibly gifted and instinctual actors, you know, making choices and just plussing everything that I, you know, wrote on in my little laptop.
0: Well, I think it's fab. I and mean, it must have been so exciting hearing it all coming together when you got the notification to say download available.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, I just, I've been a bit of a pain to everyone around me because I can't stop talking about it. <laughs> so, um,. So, like, just this week I got the uh, actual physical box set and I've been so obnoxious about it on social media. Um, And, uh, yeah, you know, my family has been kind of kept up to date through every every step of this process. And, you know, animation is very long. Animation can take, you know, can take 9 to 12 months from the time an episode is what we call shipped. To overseas animation studios, to when we get something back, and and everyone in the world sees the finished piece. So, this very much had a gestation in time that I was accustomed to. Um, But, you know, to see the, the trailer that Rob Ritchie and Jack and Helen put together, which was completely mind blowing, and, you know, hearing Colin on the big finish trailer, like, you know, say my hear my dialogue for the first time. You know, just blew the back of my head out. Um, and you know, there there is this analogy that I think I was thinking of at the time, which is, you know, studio music musicians who who do, you know, music for feature film, who come in and they may they they have they're, they're reading material cold, they've never seen it ever, and they sit down and they knock it out of the park, and very much, you know, the caliber of actors that Big Finish is able to bring in you know that's very much what they are they are they're such professionals and and you know regardless of how much they've prepped or read or not read it they make extraordinary choices just on that day you know and and really uh yeah I it I was flabbergasted you know such wonderful performances and 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 Helen Goldwyn, our director, who's been at this for quite some time as both writer and actor and director, you know, I think Helen's approach there's a there's a natural approach to to what these stories sound like to me, to my ear, um, and I think on audio that is uh, such a gift. That's such an asset because. Um, I think there's an intimacy to audiobooks that I think give them, in my opinion, that's what gives them a particular edge because it really does sound like you're there. You know, yeah. you're not just watching it. I feel like you are much more immersed in it. And I think that's one of the gifts of Big Finish. That's, that's the extraordinary opportunity there. And yeah, hearing them was, it was crazy, Kenny. It was absolutely crazy. <laughs> oh, it's lovely, it's so lovely.
0: I suppose everybody will no doubt want to know could there be more on the way? I really enjoyed it for a, I, a, a fantastically strong Doctor Who debut. So fingers crossed there might be more on the way.
1: Yeah, here's hoping. Yeah, I, I, I've pitched on two other box set opportunities. So hopefully, ho- hopefully I'll get the chance to do more. Um, and I would obviously I would do it in a heartbeat, yeah. in a heartbeat. Well, Josh, it's been an absolute joy chatting with you.
0: Yes. Yes, it has.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Kenny. Same. And I'd be happy to come back anytime absolutely my pleasure thank you for letting me prattle on not at all it's been a joy
0: huge thanks to josh for coming on and joining us remember to follow us on social media at power of three pod on twitter and that's three with the number three and we will be back next week yes next week with another episode, we're sticking with the Sixth Doctor as we're going to be previewing the next Blu-ray release in the Collection series as we have a mighty four guests joining us, including one of the stars of a story in Season 22. So, keeping up with our Powder of Three tradition, we like a song to play us out. And this week, because I'm a Pet Shop Boys fan and I saw them live in Glasgow a couple of weeks ago, here's something that seemed apt for a story set on the Moon. From their 2006 album Fundamental... Here's Luna Park. Until next week, bye-bye.
2: Shadows on the sun Another night's begun It's always dark in Luna Park Wind across the moon And soon A flying spark In Lunar Park And when we're getting high Oh